Hi, hello everyone. Hi, hello everyone. Welcome to Podbytes. I'm Valentina Kaladina. We are live on Castbox every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Podbytes is a live interactive show where we talk about podcasting. This is episode number eight. Our first show was on air about two months ago. It was April 24th. Time flies. You remember we were talking to a managing director and founding partner of Ignition Capital, John Zagula. You can check it out and replace. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining. As usual, for questions and comments, please call or text. It would be great to hear from you guys. In Podbytes, we invite investors, podcasters, and other key opinion leaders to share their insights into the future of the podcast industry. The show is recorded live and uploaded as a podcast episode afterwards. You guys can engage with other listeners and guests by dialing in or writing comments in real time. You can also send virtual gifts to the host to support the show. You can find previous episodes of the show in Replace. Just go to CastBox and search for Podbytes. Hi, Seo. Thank you for your comments and let us know if you have more questions. Okay, guys, a week ago we were joined by Peter Nigel, uh, who is senior audience researcher at the Danish Broadcasting Corporation and a member of the Executive Committee of Radio Days Europe. It was a very special episode. We were on air from London and we were talking about Podcast Day conference. I want to take a few minutes to talk about the Podcast Day. There were many great speakers at the event. I will. Uh, I would like to share some of my impressions of the of the event. As I said, there were many great speakers, and among them, uh, George the Poet, who won five gold uh, awards at the British Podcast Awards this year. It was a significant moment for the podcasting world. At the podcast day, George the Poet mentioned that he sees the podcast space as being somewhere where he can be himself. It offers him a freedom that he has not found elsewhere. One of George's best-known episodes was about the migrant crisis. It had impact beyond the podcast, helping inform international strategies and political decisions. What was interesting to me personally is to learn how he creates his podcasts. He said he spends a lot of time on the street among the characters. He sees the podcast as a new form of constructive creativity. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you guys for joining. Thank you guys for listening. Let me know if you have any questions. You can type your questions in the chat or call in. I'm talking about Podcast Day. Another great speaker at the Podcast Day was Stephen Valentino. Uh, I liked him a lot. He's a producer of the New Yorker Radio Hour. He discussed the uh, how they collaborate uh, and how this collaboration works between WNYC Studios and the New Yorker magazine, covering how they're covering news, politics, culture, and humor. He said that it isn't a radio version of a magazine, but something all its own and reflects the rich possibilities of the audio form. They use tapes that New Yorker journalists used for notes-taking purposes And sometimes they use uh, it directly, sometimes use as ambience. He was telling an interesting story how they wanted to show the life in Mar-a-Lago, which is President Trump's private club in Florida. 
But all of a sudden, Trump said to the journalist, we attacked Syria just before dinner. And this was uh, really unexpected. This is the real case, and I like stories like that, how journalists create their podcasts. One more, podcast celebrities are now called audio influencers. One of them is Lydia Bright, creator of The Bright Show. She wanted to do a show with her big household and decided that podcasts are more natural, uninvasive way. For those who don't know her, Lydia Bright is a star of Toei and she's a celebrity in the UK. And um, she wanted to create a show together with her family members. And her mom was okay with that. But dad is tech-phobic, as she, she's saying about him. This is a huge production, uh, actually, how the podcast looks like. So this is a huge production as uh, there are microphones placed all around her family home. And promotion for the podcast was done like a TV show with daytime TV slots. Young people were introduced to podcasts through this podcast due to the profile Lydia already has on social. Pictures and short sound clips were the standard, but actually the behind-the-scenes Instagram stories and Instagram live with swipe links direct to the podcast have really worked. This is how she promoted the show. So she really used Instagram to promote the show, and now she is called audio influencer in the UK. Okay, this was a great event and whoever didn't have a chance to join this time, make sure you book it for the next year. I have to say it was great to meet all the podcasters who reached out to know more about Castbox and thanks everyone for your interest. I enjoyed the event a lot. So I was talking about Podcast Day. Podcast Day happened in London last week. It was a big gathering for all the podcasters across the European countries. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, I can see so many people are joining today. Thank you, guys. Welcome, Cassie, Henry, John, Gold Crushing, Mama Lama, Thirfty, Alicia, Carolyn, Tad, Gatina, Navin, Big Champ, Alan, Dwayne, Jake, George, Joshua, Pereira, Hector, Henry. Yeah, thank you, guys. And let me know if you have any questions. You can type your questions in the chat window or call in. In today's episode, we'll be talking about U.S.-China relations and about podcasting space, about Asian companies that work in the podcasting and in the media and entertainment and that are developing their business overseas. In a few minutes, we will talk to Jim Litleitner, who is the co-founder and managing partner at the Park Bridge and an expert in U.S.-China relations. It's going to be an interesting discussion. I remind you once again that you can type your questions in the chat window and call in. But before we start the interview, let's look through some of the recent news in podcasting. Let's start with this one. BBI and Music Alley released a report on podcasts in London last night and pointed out that millennials have driven media growth. In the crowd between the ages of 15 and 24, 20% of the listening time is spent on podcasts, compared to 24% for live broadcasts and 26% for music streaming, reporting pod news. One more. Podcast consultant Avotera is launching a podcast party reporting the medium. They are defining the main tenets of the Advanced Podcasting Party. This is how it's called, APP, Advanced Podcasting Party, which are as follows. They believe that technology should make podcasting better, not just easier. 
They believe that new models are required to bring the 78% of known and infrequent listeners into the fold. They believe in and respect the inherent choices made by podcast listeners, podcast creators, and podcast enablers. Have you guys signed up? What do you think? Let me know. I'm curious about this uh, advanced podcasting party. And the last one, the nomination period for the 14th annual People's Choice of Podcasts was opened on July the 1st. Podcasts need to register to participate. Hurry up, guys, if you have your own podcasters. All right, now back to the inter interview. This is Podvice Talk Show. I'm Valentina Kaladina. Today I'm joined by Jim Lickleitner, who's a co-founder and managing partner at the Park Bridge and an expert in U.S.-China relations. Jim has been active in multiple aspects of U.S.-China relations for over a decade. Prior to co-founding Park Bridge, Jim was the head of the U.S.-China advisory practice at Star Strategic Holdings, a boutique investment bank focused on cross-border M&A, government advisory, and strategic consulting. In that role, Jim advised to Fortune 500 companies in education, healthcare, agriculture, real estate, and financial services on China's strategy and capital raise initiatives. In addition, Jim advised U.S. state governors on job creation and economic development policy through trade and investment with China. He has previously worked with the states of Indiana, Iowa, Nevada, Missouri, and Alaska. Jim started his career in China at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy, a Beijing-based foreign policy think tank, where he was responsible for building out the center's operation and development strategy. Jim is a trustee at a Global China Connection. Global China Connection is a student-run organization that is focused on people-to-people -people exchange. Jim speaks Mandarin Chinese and has traveled extensively throughout the country. Hi, Jim. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Tina. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, great, great. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining once again. And I remind to all our listeners, uh, please, if you have your any questions, type in your questions in the chat window or give us a call. Welcome, Rakesh. Welcome, Ann, Jason, Drez, Akim. Malta, George, Ryan, Abhi, Ryan again, Jonathan, George. Welcome to all the anonymous users. Today we're talking to Jim Lickleitner. Asian media and entertainment companies are growing their operations overseas. Chinese entertainment and podcasting companies are growing overseas. Some of them are really big and powerful. And we're talking to Jim today because uh, Jim is an expert in Chinese business. So I would like to use our interview to dive deep into Chinese media industry or Chinese, Chinese business and Chinese economy in general. But first, I would like to talk about your story. Let me read out loud something. This is a quote. I first visited China in 2008 for the Olympics and I studied abroad program and was immediately hooked. After graduating college in 2010, I moved in Shanxi province to immerse myself in Chinese language and culture before moving to Beijing to work on U.S.-China relations. This is from the website Project Pangyo. I would like to talk about, about your story, Jim. 
Could you tell sure. us how did you come to China first? Yeah. Um, well, first off, uh, Tina, thank you, thank you for having me, and um, you're you're super kind with that generous introduction. I don't know if I would can consider myself a, a full China expert, but um, I'm, I'm someone who pays attention to to the country and and its interaction with the world, um, specifically the U.S. and It fascinates me, so I'm I'm delighted to be here today to, to talk with you about it, and and specifically, you know, talk about some opportunities and challenges for you know the podcasting industry as it, as you know the, the Chinese market evolves and and as the U.S. market evolves and how uh, both markets can cooperate um, to um, to bring podcasts cross border. Um, but to your question, you know, about my background, so. You know, I, I've had a long history with China. It dates back actually to 2006 when、mm-hmm. I started studying Mandarin in college.、Um, you know, at the time I wanted to get into banking, and I thought the best way to differentiate myself would be to speak a language. And and in 2006,、um, the BRICS were really important. You know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, as developing economies, and、um, you know everyone was talking about it. So、right. I decided to study Mandarin, and you know, one semester led into to two years of、uh, language study, and I had the opportunity to study abroad during the summer of 2008 into the the fall and winter of 2008, and I got to to be there for the Olympics.、Um, you know, this was around the time of the financial crisis.、Uh, this was also when the U.S. was going through an election.、Um, From you know the Bush administration to the Obama administration, and I watched all of that happen while I was sitting in Beijing. So I had a very unique experience, and、um, that those six months really shaped、uh, my worldview at the time. And and I said, you know, hey, there's really something going on here in Asia, and、uh, and I should be a part of it because this seems like where a lot of the growth is. So.、Um, Went back to the U.S., graduated from university,、uh, and I decided to move to China.、Um, I graduated in May, and I was back in China by、um, October of that year.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up going to a third-tier city,、uh, which is pretty unique. Most most foreigners, when they move to China, they they pick a tier one city. They、yeah. pick、uh, Beijing or Shanghai because it's familiar. There's a lot of Western food.、Um, you know, if you're yeah, Chinese, yeah, much easier. Right, much easier to adjust. Totally, yeah. So, so I, I you know, challenged myself a little bit,、um, and、uh, I moved to Weinan City.、Um, Weinan is about a two-hour drive outside of Xi'an,、um, which is one of the interior cities in China.、Um, did six months, you know, in a city of five million, where I was one of a handful of foreigners that that spoke、uh, English,、um, and it was. It was an immersive experience, and it really made the difference because I got a different perspective of of what China is in a tier three city.、Um, so, after about six months, I moved to Beijing.、Um, I got involved at Tsinghua University, which is one of China's elite、um, uh, universities. It's graduated two of the last Chinese presidents.、Um, I ended up、uh, working on foreign policy. Uh, there was a foreign policy institution that、mm-hmm. was a joint venture between the Carnegie Endowment,、um, based out of DC, and and Tsinghua. I ended up working in the intersection of diplomacy with all the ambassadors in Beijing,、um, 
the multinationals that were looking at policy to, to make business decisions. And um, I was also looking at uh, academia with a lot of the Chinese scholars. So, so those three and a half years that I was sitting in Beijing looking at policy, I got a feel for how things operate in China at a very high level. Um, I decided in 2014, after about four full years in China, to move back to New York. And Why my, was my vision... Yeah, yeah, good question. So my vision at the time was this was when China was uh, pursuing this like Zochuchu policy, um, which is like go out and make investments. Um, this was about two years after Xi Jinping came into office. And it was, uh, you were starting to see Chinese outbound investment um, increase in a significant way, specifically in the US. So my, my thought was, why don't I go back to New York uh, and be on the receiving end of that? Um, I ended up joining a uh, investment bank that was mm -hmm. part of a, a large financial services firm with a long history with China. And I was one of the only non-Chinese on that team. And I played a critical role in working with U.S. companies that wanted to raise capital from China, uh, were looking to form JVs, uh, joint ventures, uh, had a policy-related challenge that they needed to deal with and navigate, um, or, or I was working with the government um, on the state level, uh, specifically with governors, and helping them trying to attract Chinese investment to create jobs locally. Um, that was a, an unbelievable experience and uh, oh, it put yes. me in, yeah, put me in a lot of rooms with really interesting people across a, a broad range of um, industries. But, you know, around 2017, you know, another election happened. And I think when the Trump administration came into power, um, there was a, def a different tone towards China. Um, and I think also the Chinese economy was... Uh, there was a uh, discussion around it slowing down. And, you know, my view was Chinese outbound investment, specifically to the U.S., was probably at its peak. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the growth engine for China over the next 20 years, uh, at least, is going to be the consumer. So Chinese consumers will um, pave the way for services industry. And, and that will um, be the next round of growth for the country. Right. So. In 2017, I left the investment bank and I founded um, Parkbridge Partners. Um, and, and our thesis as a company is we work with companies that aim to provide goods and services to Chinese consumer class. Um, now, now that's it's a very broad mm -hmm. statement, but within yeah. that, we've... Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, sure. Let me just ask you, I, will, I would like to talk a little bit more about... Uh, changes that you see in China because China is obviously changing and since that time since the time that you came to China first yes so much stuff changed could you just elaborate on that what's your impression on that yeah um well it, it's been really interesting you know my when I first moved to China um there's been broad broad you know uh structural changes right so so China over the past several decades has gone through a very deep investment in infrastructure, which has enabled um, a lot of the companies today to thrive. You know, I think everyone in the U.S. is aware of Alibaba and uh, to a lesser extent, JD.com and some of these really big e-commerce companies. Um, you know, Tencent, you know, owns WeChat and, and a few other businesses. But 
I think the reason that those companies are able to grow today is because of the investment in infrastructure that took place over the past 20 years. You know, China's rail system, uh, its highways, uh, investment in, in dams and, and things that were put in a position to kind of um, build up the businesses that there are today. And, and that has, you know, that coupled with China, you know, leapfrogging landlines and going straight to mobile um, has put them in a position to uh, create really dynamic uh, internet based companies. Um, you know, we're going to talk about podcasts here. That's just one of them. Um, but yeah. there's, you know, fintech uh, mobile payments yeah, has, has been a tremendous uh, growth engine for the country. And, um, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, a, a decade ago, the discussion around China was, you know, they're a copycat society. Can they innovate? Um, and I think now that's less of a debate. And I think the question more is, you know, what, uh, it's a competition around innovation um, and, you know, specifically around AI and new technology, but also services. You know, I, I, I look at companies like Shimalaya, which is one of China's leading podcast companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the monetization strategy that that company has uh, is leading in a lot of ways. Um, right, right. And, and so, a lot of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so it's uh, it's an interesting topic to talk about. And, um, yeah, we, we definitely uh, need to talk about this in details. Um, I was at the podcast day in London last week, and one player that was mentioned at the conference several times that was not from, from the West – uh, it was mentioned several times throughout the day, and that was actually that surprised me a lot. Himalaya or Himalaya, which is a Western Western subsidiary, um, and um, yeah, I was curious to talk about that, and, I, and I'm sure our listeners are interested to know more about Himalaya uh, and Himalaya. So let's start first about uh, Chinese uh, Chinese part. Let's first talk about Himalaya. Sure. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating company um, based out of Shanghai, and it, it's Himalaya, which is the Chinese characters for Himalaya, um, which yeah, is the well, mountain. Um, I believe we so have I, a listener here from Shanghai, Jay Z Fang, saying, "Hello, Jay Z Fang." Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Great, Jay Z Fang, South Shanghai. So yeah, I mean, Shimalaya is an incredibly dynamic company. Um, you know, it was founded in 2003 and has become one of the most popular uh, podcasting platforms. You know, it has over 400 million downloads since its launch. And depending on which um, publication you read, you know, it has anything from 350 million to 450 million users. That That's an absolutely incredible um, stat. And... and What's, what's also interesting about Shimalaya is that a majority of its content is free. I think there's something like, um, I have a stat here I can share with you. Yeah, please. Shimalaya hmm. is pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, we, we can talk about the differences between how it operates in China and overseas because it's definitely the way how they operate is, uh, is different. I, I just think, you know, What's interesting about Shimalaya is I think their monetization strategies, because they have so many users, 
is um, it is so deep. So they're able to do really interesting things. Um, you know, for example, it's really common in China to create festivals or holidays. You know, the e-commerce companies have Singles Day, um, which is November 11th, um, and they, they do a tremendous amount of sales in that day. But Shimalaya has created their own uh, knowledge carnival. Um, it's called One Two Three Knowledge Carnival. And in 2018, they were able to um, attract 21 million people that spent 64 million U.S. dollars in a day, which is more than the total sales of all audiobooks in the U.S. in any given week. That's so, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's just the the depth of you know their sales and what they're able to you know convert um, is fascinating. I think you know talking about you know a decade ago and, and currently you know the other thing about a decade ago was that there was this debate whether Chinese would be willing to pay for content, right? There was, it was a copycat society. There was no uh, IP protection and everyone was worried about IP infringement. However, I think we've seen a shift over the past decade to now where I think Chinese consumers are getting more comfortable paying for content, whether that's, you know, with ETE, which is, you know, the, uh, the uh, 10 cents version of Netflix or it's with Shimalaya. And, and other, you know, platforms also that, that have paid content on it. You know, there's a few reasons for that. I think one is, you know, the user base is generally in their 30s or younger, right? So the, the bulk of Shimalaya's users are about 39 and below. They tend to have a little bit more disposable income. So they're, they're in tiers one through three, and they're really focused on advancing themselves. So they're willing to pay a little bit of money, you know, a handful of RMB here and there to learn a skill. So when you look at sort of the paid content um, that's, that's um, floating through the Shimalaya system, a lot of it is audiobooks or summaries of, of, of books by Chinese scholars and experts. The other bulk of it comes from uh, courses so if you want to learn about astronomy or you want to learn about a new economics theory, there's a course for that on Shimalaya. And you can download, you know, small bite-sized courses that are about 15 minutes each, but there's about 200 or so episodes. And you can continually improve yourself, which is, which is really important to, you know, the demographic we're talking about because the job market in China is is cutthroat and it is extremely fierce. So a lot of these younger millennials or Gen Z are very interested in, in you know, continuing education. And oftentimes, you know, in the US, we would take, you know, video content or, or free audio content for, for a lot of folks in tier one cities. Um, in China, there is not a lot of time. Right. And the the time that you may have to consume content will be during your commute or it'll be kind of before bed or something. Mm-hmm. The, the type of content that you would consume at that time, you know, you're either on a subway or you're in a car or you, you don't have access to your phone because, you know, subways are congested and you can't easily take your phone out to hold it in front of you. So the easiest thing you can do is digest a 15 minute podcast and and advance yourself so in my view i think that's one of the big drivers pushing companies like shimalaya to grow exponentially they've kind of hit their sweet spot yeah so this is quite interesting i can also 
share a little bit of my experience of living in China. And I studied uh, in China and I did my MBA. Most of my classmates uh, were Chinese. And uh, what was impressive to me is that all of them are listening to uh, paid content, not necessarily from uh, Himalaya, but uh, there are a few other platforms uh, in China that provide this paid knowledge. And uh, I've Came ac- I came across a few research that are saying that pay-for-knowledge industry in China is worth 7 billion US dollars, so it's huge. And it's pretty interesting because, uh, as you said, the competition of the market is huge. And um, people, you know, I, I had a several discussions with my classmates asking them why you guys are listening to this kind of content. You're, because it's uh, kind of funny. We were at the business school, so we were having classes every day. It was full-time and quite an intense course. Yeah, but still, uh, all my Chinese classmates, they were constantly listening to this podcast, to this um, online courses. And it was just, uh, you know, sometimes they just uh, were saying, yeah, everyone is doing that. So it, it's just weird for us not to do the same. doesn't matter. We are very well educated. And also, you know, we just uh, don't want to waste time on doing nothing. So, yeah, when we commute or when we are waiting for something, we just uh, want to use this time in a valuable way. We want to use this time to learn more and to maybe learn more about some other topics. Yeah, exactly. As you mentioned about astronomy or about art, uh, about the topics that we were not talking about in business school. So, yeah, yeah. I think Absolutely. this is pretty unique. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because um, folks that, that tend to consume content are better educated. So it doesn't surprise me that you know, at your business school, a lot of the students were consuming further content in addition to their studies. It's, yeah, it's par for the course. And it's a fascinating stat. Right. Great. So, yeah, but um, Himalaya has uh, their overseas subsidiary, which is called Himalaya. And this one is pretty different. And right. uh, yeah, the, can you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that is also interesting is I think a lot of the, you know, the, the monetization model for Shimalaya, you know, in, in some respects, they've kind of paved the way for unique ways to create, generate revenue, um, which some of this, the listeners may be interested in. But if you think about all of the content that they have, they have about 100 million free recordings on Shimalaya. That's a staggering amount of content. But the only uh, content that requires payment is about 300,000. So, I mean, we're talking about a small fraction of the total library uh, that's on Shimalaya. So the question is, you know, if, if only a small fraction of the total 100 million recordings are, uh, are paid for, how, do you, how does the platform make money? So there's, a, there's a, a bunch of different monetization strategies that I just quickly want to go through. So... The traditional one that we're used to in the U.S. is advertising, um, and there's there's three general ways that you could do it. It's, you know, you could do uh, a five second drop at the beginning of, um, you know, of the show. You could do an uh, advertorial um, where it's, you know, there's a full commercial read by the host, uh, or you could do a dedicated episode where, you know, the the content basically speaks to whatever the sponsor is is paying for. But in that context, it needs to be really 
cloaked because you don't want the listeners mm-hmm. to know that they're they're being fed a commercial, right? So, so advertising generally, I think, is pretty similar to what we experience in the U.S. I think there's no surprises there. You know, being an influencer is another one. You know, charge companies for exposure. I think that's also something that we're accustomed to in the U.S. And you know, in China, it's called KOLs or key opinion leaders. Mm-hmm. Not dissimilar from influencers um, in the U.S. Paid content. So charging users for content, you know, that's what I mentioned, the 300,000 paid content uh, opposed to the 100 million free content. But where I think, you know, platforms in China have really pioneered, and we're starting to see this in the U.S. a little bit, is around tipping. So, so live broadcasting like we're doing today, I think was pioneered in China, if I'm not wrong. And, you know, that's basically where you can live cast, you can tokenize uh, money, and then you can uh, provide tipping to hosts uh, for a variety of reasons. So I think right. I think all... Yeah, all so, so sorry to interrupt you. Let me remind no to our listeners. Yeah, let me remind to everyone that if you like the show, you can send gifts to the host. So CastBox uh, has this tipping function as well. And uh, please, guys, you're welcome to use it. And this is pretty convenient for both sides. Perfect. That, that's great. So I think I think that's, you know, you know the another way to monetize. And then the last one, is to promote a, a product or service. So, you know, for example, your your show today, you know, you brought me on. Um, I'm able to speak about, you know, my background and, and a little bit of what we do at Parkbridge. That's an invaluable way for me to uh, promote myself and, and promote a product or a brand that could later be monetized, right? So I think those things are, are pretty core to the strategy for Shimalaya. What's different though is that in early 2019, uh, I think it was in January, um, the platform, uh, with along with two investors, uh, it was uh, Shimalaya uh, General Atlantic, which is a very large uh, American-based private equity firm, and um, SIG, a Chinese investment company, mm-hmm. uh, put $100 million into Himalaya. Oh yes, Which that, is... that was uh, yeah, that was the very unique case, and uh, on the market we were having a lot of debates about that, and people were doubting about the valuation. Exactly, yeah. So, the, so the valuation was super high. Um, they put a hundred million dollars into the platform, and they, you know, said a few things from the out front. You know, the first one is um, the Himalaya platform and the Shimalaya platform are independent. Um, you know, the reason that, that it was important for them to say that is because censorship in China is uh, really important. A lot of the content in the West may not be suitable for uh, the Chinese market due to censorships and firewalls. So they, they drew a bright red line in between the platforms. What's also different is the monetization strategy. So typically, uh, you know, platforms like Apple and Spotify have free content, you know, um, I think Spotify is different because you have to sign up for a premium service if, if you want, or you can have the free service. But Shimalaya had to alter their, uh, their monetization strategy a bit. So they started with potentially coming out with paid content. So uh, similar to one of the strategies they have in, in China, as well as tokenization, you know, and that's, that's another thing that they want to lead out with. So um, incentivizing people through live streaming and through other platforms to, to really pay for content in a kind of a new and unique way. So who knows? I mean, it, it's still pretty early. I think they're, they're trying to buy for market share. Un, unclear how, uh, how they'll do, but I think 
it's it's interesting to to watch these companies from afar and to see how they evolve. You know, in my view, Shimalaya is the only uh, Chinese company um, that has a presence in the Chinese market to bridge the gap into the U.S. And I think it's I think they may be one of the only ones that'll be able to do it. However, I think. Mm-hmm. What your in- listeners may be interested in is there are a number of U.S. content providers from a range of topics and sectors, podcasters, mom and pop shops that are potentially interested in licensing their content out in China. And, oh, and I think, yeah, yeah, this is the other way. Yeah, this is also interesting to talk about. Sure. Yeah. So, so you know, in my view, I think getting content from China or or business models. From China and localizing it in the U.S. market may be uh, may be challenging, and I think Shimalaya in that respect may be an outlier. But going the other way, I think there's a a little bit more opportunity, and mm-hmm. you know the reason for that is because the Chinese market, specifically around content, is driven by uh, a lot of it. I should say is driven by education. You know, the West has some of the best education institutions in the world, and because of that. You know, there's an opportunity in a few different ways to localize content for China, the Chinese market, and and I should emphasize localization.、Um, mm-hmm. That is going to be the biggest key to getting your content into the Chinese market. You know, the first thing I would say is if、uh, if you're not familiar with China, if you have、uh, zero concept of how to get into the Chinese market, you should you should have a partner. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And you're laughing because you know how true it is. I, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before we talk about education, let me just、uh, sure. be clear.、Uh, we are talking about、uh, Himalaya and Himalaya just because it's a big player, not because、uh, we want to promote them. And we are here on Castbox, and、uh, Castbox is very innovative, and、uh, obviously we are all competing on this market. And、um, yeah, so we think it's important to talk about all of、uh, the competitors. So yeah,、um, speaking about education,、um, you work in this space a lot、uh, as a park bridge,、um, and before you worked in this space as well. So speaking about、uh, educational companies that are entering Chinese market, where do you see the potential? Which segment is、uh, most attractive? Education for which age segment is、uh, you think has most potential? Sure. Yeah, so I think education is one of the bright spots. I think、uh, for the Chinese market, I think、um, in in the Chinese family, because of the social structure and the one-child policy, there is a tremendous emphasis that's placed on educating the one child、uh, or two children that's in the family. Because of that, a lot of resources are put into、uh, Chinese children's educa- education. You know, that's everything from weekend classes in English to math camps. To、mm-hmm. focusing on STEM and and a bunch of other things, so the podcasting industry is actually starting to see a lot of、uh, traction in that space. You know, there are companies in China that sell to the local Chinese market, especially in early childhood education. Oh yes, just curious if you've seen、uh, these new business models. And I was、uh, personally impressed when I go to the shopping mall and when I see the. Company that uh, uh, arranged the music school in just you know in the shopping mall, and it, it's pretty normal. Every shopping mall has its own music school, at least one or maybe two or even three, and all the parents are are really eager to bring their kids. 
to the music school. Yeah, so I, I think it's definitely very impressive these days. Yeah, I think I think it's fascinating. Um, but it also presents an opportunity, I think, for American podcasters or or people that have audiobooks or specific vertical expertise that may be in the STEM curriculum, you know, because Chinese platforms are trying to attract uh, so many Chinese families, the things that are important to them are English speaking and becoming, you know, learning from a Westerner that has a mm-hmm a North American or Australian or UK accent. It is getting exposure to world leading professors in STEM content areas. Mm-hmm. So so there's companies, you know, and, and people that create podcasts around interesting topics that have an opportunity to localize, I think, in, in the market and maybe create a little bit of awareness uh, for themselves and potentially cash flow if they're able to localize correctly in the Chinese market. Especially I'll say if if, you know, the American podcaster has uh, a very large following or a reputation or a name for themselves. If um, they're a leading expert in, in something, there is a potential to, to bring that content to China. And I think in the future, my sense is, you know, that may be one of the bright spots in, you know, U.S.-China um, cross-border business. Right. I think you can put a tariff on uh, widgets and uh, products. Um, it's it's you can restrict visas for students traveling back and forth. It's a little bit more challenging to restrict uh, content that goes cross border, right? And especially if it if it can get through the Great Firewall, right? So why I do think you it's think, a bright spot? Yeah, why do you think STEM cu- curriculum, STEM courses are the most attractive? Any specific reason for that? You know, I think when. Chinese family, you know, in the education system, uh, decisions aren't really made by the, the students. They're more made by the parents, right? And the parents, especially with early childhood education, are are guiding the students and the ones spending the money. So for parents, I think they look at the world and they look at what people in their communities are, are focusing on. And, and they think that, you know, computer science, you know, engineering are really the, the things of the future. Uh, there's a lot of talk about AI, and I think if you reverse engineer those careers and what it requires, um, you, you, you focus on STEM. So I think for that reason, and, and you know, there's also like a top-down, you know, push there, right? Because the, mm-hmm. the, I think the Chinese government is also interested in creating more students that focus on these areas. So for all those reasons, I think that there's a thirst for content there, um, especially best-in-class from a global perspective. Right. Do you think Western podcasters have to adjust their content in any specific way? So I think, you know, that's a very sensitive subject because that is that's a personal decision. Right. If if you are talking about things that would be considered sensitive in China, history, religion, geography, you know, depending on the topic, it's a personal decision if you change that or not. Some some companies have to get into access to the market and others don't. You know, they, they said, you know, this is this is our content and we're not going to water it down um, to make it accessible in China. I think from, you know, from a early childhood education perspective or where I see the most opportunity, it's areas that don't rub up against any sort of sensitivity. You know, it's it's hard sciences. It's it's math. It is um, it's business. Some some areas of pop culture. It's things that are more universal and kind of indisputable. And I think 
that's probably if I were a podcaster and I was in those areas, I would probably see the the better opportunity looking at China. Right. Uh, it's very, very interesting. I think it's a great advice. And I remind to all our listeners, if you guys have questions, just please give us a call or type your questions in the chat window. Welcome to those who joined recently, Mike, Jagd, Robert, Unique, Zoe, Lars, Peter, Jackson, Carl, Roger. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Thank you, Eric and Zoe, for your likes. Uh, let us know if you have any questions. We are going to wrap up the show in a bit. But before we wrap up, uh, I would like to talk about a few topics. We have a few examples um, on the market of Chinese companies that are successful in China and also successful overseas. For example, ByteDance or the ByteDance Group. I mean, the, they have a lot of different various companies that are really successful overseas. What do you think of it? Why they are so successful? Um, so I think ByteDance is an excellent example. I think there, there's a few others, uh, you know, um, but what's specific to ByteDance is that it's a, well, it's, it's a ton of companies, right? Totiao is a news aggregator. So that's a news app, you know, Musical.ly uh, was acquired by ByteDance. That's a, an app that lets uh users sing to their favorite music videos and create, you know, their own version of it. There's TikTok, which is an Instagram video like feature where there's like 15 second video clips that, that people can edit in fun ways. I think what's interesting to them is they've really hit a nerve with Western audiences and they understand user patterns. I think they were early in a trend and they were able to create videos and platforms that have gone viral. The other thing that's that's pretty interesting is, you know, when you when you ask people about WeChat, almost everyone knows it's Chinese. But when you ask people about Musical.ly, very few people uh, understand that it's owned by ByteDance. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, ByteDance has done a particularly a good job of keeping a low profile um, and not really coming out and promoting themselves as a Chinese company. Um, they let their product speak for themselves. And um, and they let things happen kind of organically. I think they've also hired really strong teams uh, around the U.S. And I think, you know, product managers locally have done a good job of um, localizing for the market. Yeah, definitely. Can you think about other interesting business models that work in China but don't exist on the West? Yeah, anything, you know... Anything what has potential, let's say, anything what what can be... Uh, you know, introduce and implement it on the West. So I would love your thoughts on this, um, Tina, but, you know, the news yesterday was that Facebook was going to launch Libra. Um, yeah. And this is the cryptocurrency that you can use. It's going to be pe uh, pegged to a basket of goods or something so that it'll be uh, stable. Um, it won't fluctuate like Bitcoin um, or Ripple. And you can use to buy things. And it has a ton of partners, MasterCard, Chase, a few others. Um, but when I read the press release, I was like, gosh, this really sounds like WeChat. Um, and it sounds like Jerfubauer, Alipay. Um, so I, I, I'd ask you the question, what, what did you think about that announcement? And um, do you think it makes sense? Or it looks more like a Chinese business model? <laughs> um 
I don't think it looks like a Chinese business model. I think uh, it's just, uh, it's kind of normal. We see innovations that are coming from different parts of the world and some of the new business models are coming from China. Some of the new business models are coming from other Asian countries. Uh, and this is pretty normal that nowadays it's not only new things and R&D is coming from the West. It's very normal that new things are coming from the East. Or my thoughts on that is uh, that it's, um, it's fine to uh, adjust uh, this kind of different business models for, for different markets. Business is nowadays is not restricted by geography or by cultural, uh, you know, cultural areas or cultural preferences. And speaking about this recent news, I think uh, it's interesting and we'll see how it's, how it will go forward. Really curious about that. Yeah, I am too. It, it will be interesting to see how it rolls out. You know, one of the things you just mentioned was, you know, business models are global nowadays, right? So it doesn't matter if it, if a business model comes from the East or it was originated in the West. I think, you know, what will be interesting looking forward are business models um, and how they compete in emerging markets. So I think, in, you know, from where I sit looking at the world, it, it's really interesting that Chinese companies are vying for market share in Southeast Asia, in India, in Latin America, you know, places that have growth stories that are a little bit more similar to the Chinese growth story. You know, large populations, uh, people that are uh, mobile first are getting on mobile in a big way. You know, purchasing power for the middle class is rising to a certain threshold that allows for e-commerce and some other business models. And I think from the West, you know, we're a developed nation, right? Uh, or the U.S. is. And I think it may not be as accustomed to adapting to those local markets. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, in the case, how some of these business models going forward um, will, will work in these. Right. So before we wrap up, uh, I want to talk about you as China relationship because you're an expert in, uh, in this area. On your Twitter, uh, you retweeted a picture of Empire State Building lights up with the colors of Chinese flag to celebrate Spring Festival. It was back in 2014. Uh, it was a long time ago, and uh, I think things changed since that time. So first of all, uh, just a simple question. Do you think it will happen again? <laughs> and uh, also, you know, the Speaking about your business, uh, speaking about uh, Parkbridge, because you're focusing a lot uh, on working with Chinese customers or you're focusing on the Chinese market. So what, uh, what are the challenges for you guys these days? Or do you have any challenges these days? Yeah, well, that, that's a loaded question. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, yeah, a very thoughtful one. Uh, you know, I, I hope that things get better between the U.S. and China. I... Uh, I think the challenge is that um, currently, you know, uh, years prior, um, the U.S. business community was kind of the ballast or, or the foundation for the U.S.-China relationship. I think that the two countries could work through those things um, with the foundation of the business community. However, I think that foundation has eroded and um, there is a lot of questioning about the path forward and, and how, you know, should we restructure uh, the U S China relationship? Um, a lot of people pay attention to 
the executive branch of the U.S. government, which is the, you know, the Trump, uh, you know, his office. Um, but if you look actually across a number of different um, branches, you know, the judiciary, uh, I think Treasury, you know, you look at uh, the um, Defense Department, they're actually they've released all of their own um, sort of policies towards China. And there's been a shift to a more hawkish stance. And I think that won't change. So regardless of, you know, she and Trump meeting at the G20 uh, next week, mm-hmm. uh, which will likely happen given their phone call. And, you know, maybe in the in the near to midterm, we may come to some sort of a trade agreement that will be uh, a ceasefire and Huawei will become off the table. I think regardless of those things, the, the U.S.-China relationship has been reset. And I think we're looking for a new footing. So I, I don't think we'll be able to go back to what it was. We'll have to figure out what it will be going forward. And I think that just leads to a number of complications for, you know, U.S. companies and Chinese companies looking to do business cross-border and also podcasters that may be looking for opportunities in global markets. TJ Gaudi is asking, Jimmy, if you were to place a bet, would you bet for Trump getting reelected next year? Oh, I'm not a politician, so I don't know. Um, uh, what I do know is that, I, you know, according to the latest polls in the U.S., he's trailing uh, one of the Democratic nominees, I think Biden, by a few points. So who knows? I just, I don't have a crystal ball. Okay. Coming back to the question, sorry, it was a long question. And uh, yeah, I wanted to come back to the second part of it. Any specific challenges for your business these days? Yeah, I think, you know, it was interesting. I was just in China uh, about a week ago and I was there for about uh, 18 days. And over that time, I met with a range of public sector, private sector, government, non-government. And I think across the board, there was a general interest in supporting business, you know, cross-border business from a government standpoint. You know, the local government was very welcoming of U.S. businesses, uh, the U.S. consulate and embassy were supportive uh, American companies doing business. But when you talk to the businesses uh, in the private sector, there's a ton of hesitation. And I think, from my understanding, from what I've read and who I've talked to, a lot of companies um, have decided to pause their investments because there's so much uncertainty. That, for me, at least in my business, presents opportunities and challenges. So helping companies navigate uh, divestitures or... Uh, you know, realigning of supply chains uh, is is kind of an emerging opportunity as opposed to before we were helping companies invest, you know, cross-border and grow businesses. Um, now I think there's a little bit of a recalculation. Mm-hmm. Are you positive? What do you expect? Yeah, uh, it, it's unclear. I, I'd be lying to you if I told you I knew uh, what was going to happen. And um, I think... I think it will be interesting to see what happens going forward. What you should look at is what happens at the G20 and over the next few months, but also what will happen going into the 2020 election cycle. Mm-hmm. I think the current administration will need to have a narrative about what's going on with the U.S.-China um, debate. And I think the, the Chinese may be looking to a new administration should Trump not be successful in getting reelected. And if that's the case... Um, will there be a new set of policies? My hunch is probably not too different, but yeah, it may be a wait and see until we get to 2020. Who knows? Right. Let's see. Let's see. We have to wrap up the show here. 
You're listening to the Podbytes, and we were joined by Jim Lechleitner, who's a co-founder and managing partner at the Park Bridge and an expert in U.S.-China relations. Jim, thank you so much. Tina, it was a pleasure having you. Thanks, thanks for the for the time. This was great. Yeah, it was great, and thank you guys for your likes and questions. We had a question from Abdullah about social media marketing. I promise we'll get back to this、uh, topic in one of our next shows. Thanks everyone for joining today. What bites is a weekly show. We're going to be on air next Wednesday, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Our guest for the next week is Wei Jiang. I'll see you next week.